All right, let's uh, grab our Bibles, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. These are the words of God. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of the heart." And then each one's praise will come to him from God. Let's pray. Our Father and God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Politics in the sanctuary. One of the principal themes found throughout the Bible is the great war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. That is something that goes throughout the entire Bible. In the garden sanctuary of Eden, Adam, you'll remember, was called to work and keep, Genesis 2.15. He was called to work and keep. He was to cultivate the garden and to protect it. And this is a garden temple. And Adam was called to work and keep this temple as a priest lord. And once he was matured, he would be a king. He would become a king in a fuller sense, expanding the sanctuary's influence throughout the world in the Dominion Covenant. The liturgy of the garden sanctuary, what Adam did there in worshiping God, learning from God, hearing from God's word, that liturgy was supposed to set the pace for the liturgy of the world. The culture of the garden was, to, was meant to go out into the rest of the world. And Adam's worship, which compri was comprised of, of Sabbath rest, praise, word, and sacrament, coupled with other cultural developments, of course, that was meant for inexorable growth. It was supposed to expand out into the world. And it is true that Adam and Eve's sin... Adam and Eve's sin was a rebellious partaking of the forbidden tree of knowledge. They weren't supposed to partake of that tree. However, when we assess the situation, 
we realize that the serpent had no business being there in the first place. Some animals were allowed in, some were not. The serpent had no business being there in the first place. Adam was supposed to guard the sanctuary. He was supposed to guard the sanctuary, but instead he let that guard down and sin entered into God's good creation order. So internal politicking in the sanctuary from the serpent led to Adam's, excuse me, Eve's confusion. Eve was, I believe, genuinely confused. Eve was confused and Adam was thus dismissed. He was, they were sent out from the garden. Now, they had seized God's tree before it was time. I'm under the conviction that they were eventually to eat of it to grow in maturity, to be able to discern between good and evil in a, in a manner consistent with God's judgment, but they seized it before they were ready, which is always uh, what youthful, prideful men will do. So they seized before it was time, effectively severing the covenant, and now they experienced guilt and shame for the very first time. The, thir- the, 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 the serpent thought himself to be campaigning with wisdom. That was his campaign slogan. He was, he's the wise one. God has not been disclosing things fully. There's more to the story. That was the serpent's campaign slogan, right? I'm the wise one. You know, wisdom, integrity, truth. That was probably the three things on his nice blue or red colored you know, political campaign. But he questioned God's authority. He questioned God's authority in the eyes of our first parents, and thus the sanctuary was profaned, and thus all parties had to be removed. And profaning the sanctuary is at the heart of sin. Profaning the sanctuary is at the heart of sin. Ezekiel 23, 20, uh, 39 explains it like this, For when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it, and behold, thus they did within my house. So you, don't, you can't do child sacrifice out there and then come into the sanctuary and pretend things are hunky-dory. That is a profanation of the sanctuary. <clears throat> the struggle with the serpent ended when, uh, and by the way, that's all over Leviticus, this profaning of the temple. But the struggle with the serpent ended when Christ exhausted evil's only real angle, which was death. That struggle was over. What's the worst thing that sin in the serpent can do? Death. Well, that was exhausted in the resurrection. The victory of the resurrection sealed the devil's place in the eternal lake of fire. That said, the history of this seed war is always a war surrounding politics in the sanctuary. Whether it's the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem, from the garden all the way up to the church, the political jockeying for priority and supremacy over against the central worship of God, itself a profaning of the sacred space, is something God hates. It's something God hates. Hates, and we're going to see it right here in our text. Let's look together, 1 Corinthians 3. <laughs> As I mentioned last week, we have two metaphors pertaining to agriculture and architecture, 
Two metaphors are used here. One is agriculture, the other is architecture. The Corinthians are God's field. Remember, Paul had planted seeds, Apollos came along and watered, and they are also God's building. Jesus is the foundation, and Paul and Apollos chose to build with wise materials that will withstand God's fiery judgment, which is to say that they use God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. And that's really what the point he's making in invoking these metaphors. Paul doesn't want them to see that God merely owns the church. That is true. Paul goes further. God inhabits the church. God inhabits the church. It's not just about him owning it. It's his field, his building. He lives there. He lives there. And he asked them with some rhetorical flair there in verse 16, Do you not know? It reminds me of Jesus. You're a teacher of the law and you don't know these things. Um, sometimes that type of rhetoric is very appropriate. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The yous here are plural. That's where the King James helps a little bit. The yous are plural, talking about the, the Corinthians. Don't you know that all of y'all, that's the best way to translate it, God's Spirit dwells not simply in the individual Christian, which is true, we learn later in chapter 6, verse 19, but in the gathered community together. The Spirit lives here with us together. Perhaps they had forgotten this point, or maybe they never really understood it until Paul comes along and tells them and explains it. But what he says is fairly controversial. The word he uses here <clears throat> refers not to a temple generally, but to the inner sanctuary where God or some other deity was thought to dwell. So if your translation says temple, it's not, it's not really a great translation because there is a different word in Greek for temple. Sanctuary is probably the best. It, we're talking about the inner sanctum where the God, whoever it is in this case, it's God, obviously, the, the true God, where he dwells. And the Corinthians understood the image. The Jews remembered the temple in Jerusalem. They knew how it was structured, the beauty and grandeur of it. They knew what the bronze altar was outside there right before you go in. They knew the huge water basin that was there, what that was used for. You walk in and you see the showbread and the menorah. You see the, the lampstand there. They knew behind that veil was the, the ark. And that's where God is. So you are that inner part, he says. So the Jews knew it. And the Gentiles there, they knew it because temples were everywhere. Temple to Apollos was a huge structure in Corinth that everybody saw every day. You couldn't miss it. He says, you are that temple. At this time of writing, the second temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And, and no doubt this was primarily on Paul's mind, given his reference to gold, silver, and precious stones back in, in verse 12. The temple, you have to understand, the temple was the center of Jewish life. God dwelt there. And they knew the story. Ezekiel watched Yahweh leave the temple, but the prophets promised that Yahweh would come back to the temple, which is what Jesus does in John 2 that was just read. But they knew nations were to come and make their prayers there. Sinners are forgiven there too. But Paul does this unthinkable thing and he says, this is no longer the case. 
God doesn't dwell there anymore. He dwells in worshiping communities and churches like in Corinth. And this claim was a fairly earth-shattering proposition. The sacred space had moved. The presence of God had shifted. The new co- in the New Covenant era, things were different. I think that Paul, contrary to most evangelicals today, Paul understood the Olivet Discourse to be about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And he knew, he knew, and he develops his theology off of the lips of Jesus when he prophesies its coming destruction within a generation. So that is looming large over the pages of the New Testament. <clears throat> now, Paul focuses on two main things. First, the dependence the Christians have on the Holy Spirit marks their identity as God's holy sanctuary. That is true. But then second, in verse 17, anyone who destroys it will be destroyed by God. If you attempt to destroy the church, you will be destroyed. Temple sacrilege was well known. It was a well-known concept. Whether erecting a statue in place of the ark uh, or making unauthorized sacrifices, Antiochus Epiphanes IV had done so, led to the Maccabean Revolt, which is where we get Hanukkah, the Jews get Hanukkah. Um, but profaning the temple was a serious matter. Dozens of times, I mentioned this already, in Leviticus, it talks about profaning the sanctuary. And it's not about what you do in it, though that's part of it. It's what you do outside of it. You can profane the sanctuary by touching a dead carcass. There were certain holiness codes and restrictions in Leviticus. Lord willing, we're going to look at Leviticus someday soon. But Paul essentially says, look, watch how you are building this church, this kingdom-oriented enterprise here. Watch how you're building. The building could be destroyed with God's fire if the wrong materials of human wisdom are used. In fact, if this is the case, then the builders will be considered desecrators, creating cliques, competing for notoriety, self-promotion, all of it might impress the rhetoricians and, and the philosophers, but all it does is defile God's sanctuary. Paul says, beware. The Corinthians are the holy sanctuary of God's glorious presence. Shocking to say, given the problems that they had. But Paul says, that is you, so now you need to act like that is the case. Which is always how sanctification works. You're in Christ, act like it. That's sort of what sanctification really is all about. The literal, literal reading of verse 17 goes like this. If it is God's holy place that someone destroys, destroy that person, will God. That's almost as literal as you can get from the original text. And the punishment, of course, fits the crime. Paul doesn't specify the names involved, but he gives a stern warning. You're playing with fire working against the spirit like this. The church isn't your personal playground for advancing your own agendas, he says. In verse 18, Paul cuts to the chase. Don't be self-deceived. He just gets right to it. Don't be self-deceived. Don't be wise in man's ways. Deception can be bad. There is such a thing as godly deception, and we should make, avail ourselves to it. But self-deception is far worse. That's a very bad place to be. All autonomous thought and thinking is apostate thought and thinking, and 
that's thinking that begins and ends with man and, and never God. But that's the height of self-deception. Channeling his inner Socrates here, Paul says that in order to become wise, because Socrates said as much, something very similar to this, in order to become wise, you have to give up wisdom. You want to be first? Be last. You want to be wise? Become a fool. That's the exchange rate. If you want wisdom, give it up. Because you're battling against the world. In other words, you need to disconnect from the world's way of thinking and reconnect to the cross of Jesus Christ. And, this is verses 19 and 20, remember that the seemingly indefatigable wisdom of the world, remember that it's utter folly. It's nonsense, the drivel that I see come through on television and in news reports. And you're just thinking, these people are stupid. They do not understand. And they will, boy, do they think they're so wise. They think they're so wise. Well, it's our best judgment that this, and you just hear that and you think, do you, do you know what you're saying? You want to be wise and you have to become a fool. And he quotes Job 5 here to prove the point that God knows all. He knows all. It's inexhaustible wisdom. And what he knows of man always falls short. God knows all the wisdom of the world, and it's always coming in last place. A true Christian accepts the fact that he will always stand in opposition to the world of sin and rebellion, and he does not fear. I think that's what the church needs to hear most today. Stop trying to be liked by the world. They do not care. They are not impressed. You just look like the fool that you are for trying to do it. And this is wisdom, Paul says. This is wisdom. It's wisdom to stand in opposition to the world. So be the fool in that way. Don't try to be wise like them, despite what the world may say. Now, he brings the point back in verse 21. So then let no one boast in men. He's dealing with this boasting problem in the church. Don't do it, he says. Misplaced confidence leads to boasting, and boasting is the fruit of self-deception and not the Holy Spirit. But why not boast? He tells them, for all things belong to you. What an interesting, jarring statement. All things belong to you, whether the teachers, the world, life or death, things present or things to come. Verse 22, he emphasizes it again. All things belong to you. What is he doing? Well, because God places his ministers and teachers Within the context of the church, they are all the property of the congregation and not the other way around. One writer brings the point home. He says, when Christians follow God and his wisdom, they will become keenly aware that both their human leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Peter, and their victory over their human concerns, world, life, death, present, future, all of those things have been granted as gifts from God. You've been given everything, so why do you strive as though you do not have it? Verse 23 totalizes and accentuates the point. And you, he says, belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. That is, the, the wise ultimately belong to Christ. They do not belong to the world, 
and they don't even belong to themselves. Remember what Paul will say later, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This, he's already telling them that here. He's going to tell them again later. You're not, you, don't even, you don't belong to the world. You belong to Christ. You do not belong to yourself. So why boast? Why be arrogant? Why be prideful? You do not belong to yourself. They have been given everything in the world, now in the world to come. They are not lacking. So why are you guys boasting in men, he says. Everything is already Christ. Christ bought the world with his blood. The world has nothing. It's been plundered. The strong man was bound, defeated. That serpent was crushed. They have nothing. The only thing they can do is take from us. So he says, everything is already Christ and you have Christ. So what else is there? Don't say, I belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. The apostle illustrates this in the next section and some of this tension here. Paul doesn't even worry about himself. And I love this about this part of the letter. Paul doesn't even worry about himself. Why should they examine him in this way? Um, Paul is a servant of Christ. He's a steward of the mysteries of God, he says there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Meaning he isn't after popularity contests. His aim is to please his true Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Their assignment comes from God and not the Corinthians. The teachers here, their assignment is from the Lord, not them. They are assistants to Jesus. He's the head of the church. They're under shepherds. That's what pastors and elders are. They are fellow workers of God together, and they're not servants of the Corinthians doing their bidding. So Paul did not receive his marching orders from the Corinthians. The Corinthians didn't knock him off his high horse and bring him to salvation. That was Christ. And he wants to be found faithful, verse 2. He wants to be found faithful as a steward of Jesus Christ in his will. They don't control him. Paul is free from having to do politicking in the church because his orders come from on high. The minute you stop understanding that your orders come from Christ is the minute internal politicking happens. Which is why he says what he says in verse 3. It's a small thing to be examined by the Corinthian church, he says, or any human court. That word court is literally day, as in your day in court. And he's going to come back to that in verse 5. But in, in fact, it's a small thing to be judged by anyone. Paul doesn't even examine himself. <laughs> Meaning he doesn't spend his day as a people pleaser with a tortured conscience. Personal introspection, which is often morbid, is fallible and it's ultimately useless. He's not saying you should never consider if you offended someone and maybe try to clarify and make that right. He's not saying you never examine yourself to see uh, if you're following the holiness of God. He's never saying that. He's saying that that standard is Christ and it's not ourselves and it's not anyone else. Verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. I'm not by, by this declared innocent. That's not the issue. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So put it in this context. Remember, the Corinthians were big on elevating leaders. They were big on it. They loved their favorite rhetoricians. And they would come to town and they would just be so impressed. 
And Paul yanks this out of their hands so much so that he effectively says, my own self-assessment is low. I don't take myself too seriously, he says. And it is no more important than your criticisms of me. Because we can get in that mode, can we not? Of just assuming people around us have this thing against us or we just start attributing motives and you become in this, I like that, you're a tortured conscience. Paul says none of that. He's he's not saying he's completely innocent. He's just unaware of any major breach of contract between him and the Lord. He can't be his own judge, so why would he elevate the judgeship of the Corinthians? Who cares what the world says? Who cares what the person next to you says? They're not your judge. They may be there to help aid you in your sanctification, but that's they're not the judge. It's not the job of the Corinthians to give Paul a performance evaluation. His day in court with them or any, anyone else is meaningless. Why? Because the only day that matters is verse 5. The day of Christ's judgment, when all things, including our secrets and intentions and motives of the heart, come forth in all their fullness when we see God face to face. It's like he's saying, look, God knows your motives and your intentions, so stop projecting that onto everybody else. God knows. God knows. The only verdict any of us should care about is the verdict of Christ. Not what the world thinks, and not even what your brothers and sisters in the Lord think. The verdict you should care about is the verdict of Christ. And then, verse 5, each one's praise will come to him from God. Exactly. Do you want praise? Then God praises you. Be faithful to him. Do not boast in men. Do not glorify the self. Do not profane the sanctuary of God, his church, with internal politicking. Be content with Christ, he says. So how shall we then live? In boasting in their favorite preachers and teachers, the Corinthians had dumped gasoline in an already raging fire. Internal conflict, which we're going to see again and again in this letter, was the result of the problem of self-glorification. Self-glorification. The church needed to be reminded of a lot of things. They needed to be reminded of the deficiency of human wisdom. They needed to know the centrality of the cross, the importance of wise discernment by the Spirit, and proper judgment. The process of knowing and learning. um, Attitudes even within the church towards each other and towards leaders and so forth. They needed to know a lot of things. And when Paul says not to boast, he's he's not to do that because he says not to do it because people are prone to do it. Don't boast in yourself or in men, boast in in Jesus Christ, their obsession with self-glorification came out visibly as a commitment to their favorite preacher and teacher. Remember what what I noted last week, the Corinthians were were boasting about Paul. I think Paul's just a lot smarter. I think Apollos is kind of dumb. Well, I think Apollos is a master rhetorician, and he's far more of a pleasure to listen to than Paul. Oh, let's talk about Peter, though. Peter's so good, right? That, that's, they were boasting about these men, but what they were saying said more about them than it did Paul and Apollos. And this is often the case with divisive people. 
How they present something, how they present something is really what's being said. How they present it is really what's being said. They were claiming their allegiance to human teachers because that's what the culture had trained them to do. Boy, isn't Aristotle so great? He just, I feel like he opens the world up to me. Well, I don't know. I kind of more agree with Plato. Well, what about Socrates? Have you heard of Plutarch? Pythagoras was pretty smart. This was the, that world. And, and don't think for a minute we're not capable of that. Because we just do it today with politicians. Because they're rock stars. Right? They sign autographs when they should be shining my shoes. Right? They, the Corinthians were disciples of the Greco-Roman way. And Paul had to, I'm going to make up a word again, undisciple them in that way. He had to undisciple them in this culture and slap the idols out of their hands and say, no, you may not, and point them to Christ, their true master. They're, they're glorying in prestige because of some lucid attachment to, their, to a favorite teacher. They were preaching a false gospel. I'm telling you, there's a lot of false gospels being preached today in churches that are ostensibly orthodox. And it's not so much that they don't understand Christ and the centrality of the gospel by their inaction, by their unwillingness to be salt and light, by their commitment to pietism and so forth. They are preaching a false gospel, and that too needs to be exposed. And the false gospels have to be confronted, and it was... Sinful and foolish behavior, unbecoming of a Christian period, let alone within the Spirit-filled churches. But why was this foolish? Why was this stuff foolish? Well, Paul says that it was nonsense because they were depleting the resources and the inheritance that they possessed in Christ. Self-glorification came from pride-induced hearts and believing that developing factions based on prestige was a good idea, Paul tells them that they are at risk of losing everything they already have in Christ. That's what the, the fiery judgment is. All things were already theirs in Christ, so why strive with such arrogance and boasting? If you possess the world, if you own the world, why fuss about someone else's furniture? It's all yours. Think about that. All things belong to you. Everything. The dictionary belongs to Christians. And thank the Lord for Christians who made it. Because Western culture became a, quite a burgeoning presence in the world, partly because of that, whether it's the printing press or, you know, you, you name it. But everything is yours, so why worry about what someone else has? Everything is yours. And this is always the problem of pride. Prideful hearts see the salvation Christ gives us and gives his people. Prideful hearts see that salvation as being liberation. That is, a liberation to do what is right in their own eyes. Christ saved me so I can live how I want. Paul deals with that in Romans. But the opposite is really the case. And this is the wisdom of God that I think he hones in on here. When Christ sets his salvation upon us, we actually become enslaved. 
we actually become enslaved to Christ, our master. We are liberated from sin, yes, and that's where some people stop. But we are enslaved to Christ, our Lord and our master. Now what matters is what he says to us. The Corinthians believed that they could be set free in order to serve their own agendas, their own sin, their own pride, their own self-glorification, their own boasting. Christ does not set people free in order to make sure they can live however they choose. You know, jettisoning God's law while being unencumbered by seemingly petty rules. He sets people free so that they will obey his orders. He's the commander. You must obey him. We are supposed to be zealous about the deep things of God. And he mentions that earlier in, in chapter 2 and 3. We're supposed to be zealous about those things, for God has given us everything. But if God has given us everything in Christ, and we are His, and we belong to Him, and we receive our marching orders for Him, well, why give yourself to bad judgment? Why give yourself to self-glorification? Why give yourself over to pride? Why boast in men? Why canvass the congregation for political gain? Politicking in the sanctuary. See, the church is the temple of God. The, the visible church is His sanctuary where His Spirit dwells. We could spend hours thinking about that. And when we gather for worship like this, remember, He is talking about a collective, a gathered people in a particular locale. What He says about that local visible church can be said about churches in other places too. It wasn't just the church in Corinth. But when we gather like this, we need to remember what Hebrews teaches us. Together, as God's people, we have come to Mount Zion. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, he's talking to groups of Christians here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is, his flesh, his flesh goes through the veil and we go with him. We're, in, we're uh, in his train. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Leviticus language. Let us draw near. When they would bring their offerings, God's people are supposed to draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, so we'll go with that. But with a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, language from Leviticus, certain sacrifices had to be done a certain way. Sometimes blood was to be sprinkled all over the altar. Some of it was to be burned. Some of it consumed. Some of it had to go outside the camp because it was considered unclean. Some of it you go into the temple once a year. You can sprinkle the, the ark, the altar there, the mercy seat of, of Christ, of Yahweh's presence. Our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The washings outside of the temple there in, right before you go into the entrance, you had the bronze altar and then you had the huge water basin for washings, cleansing, points us to baptism. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul is saying the same type of stuff here. As God's people, we enter into the holy places because Jesus said we could come with him. By his blood, his flesh, when Jesus died, the veil was torn from top to bottom. That was not an accident. God did that. We now have access to the holy place. We don't go just once a year. We go when we gather and we worship and we praise him. We draw near because we have a priest who brings us to God. And the visible church is God's chosen outpost to display his glory to a watching world. Worship matters, and what we do and why we do it matters. And the church isn't a man-made institution. (laughs) It's not supposed to be. And if we treat it like this, God will destroy that person, he says. The church is King Jesus' army that has, we've been conscripted into his army for his purposes. His purposes, friends. The church should be about his purposes and not the purposes of the world. And if you try to mess with that, Paul says, God will judge you. Moreover, how exactly then should we treat the visible church? How should we treat the sanctuary? Well, we should do it with patience. We should be patient with one another, right? There's a lot of one another's in Scripture. We should be patient with one another. We should love one another. Love is like the the theme throughout the whole letter. He's going to get to the great love section there. Love doesn't boast. (laughs) He's already planting seeds in the early part of the letter. He's going to get there. But love doesn't boast. We should love one another. And there should be wisdom rooted in the cross. And with, with, we should do all of this with selflessness and humility. And we must truly see God's work as being God's work and not the work of men. We do what we do because it's God's property. And we are His. Um, we, we must practice church discipline so that the sanctuary doesn't become polluted with divisive people. We have to hold Christ as supreme so that we will not be tempted to elevate men. The sanctuary is a place of God's worship. It's of God worship, not man worship. It's a place of submission to King Jesus and not a place to elevate human dust. And remember what I said earlier in this series. Paul called these unrefined, prideful Corinthians saints. Right at the very beginning of chapter 1, he called them saints. Now, were they acting saintly? (laughs) Nobody still calls them to what they are. It's a great way for parents to help their children. You are a Christian. Children, you are Christians. God has given you everything. Love it. Enjoy it. Rest in that. And parents, we remember, yeah, we should do the same thing. Because <laughs> we, we oftentimes can forget the very same thing. But they were called saints. They were called holy ones. And yes, they've been set apart. But remember, saints have access to the sanctuary. To be a saint is to have access to the sanctuary. Saints are the ones who are invited into the holy places. They can approach the throne because Jesus' blood allowed them entry. That's the ticket to get in. Why are you here? Jesus' blood. Period. Why are you here? Jesus died for me. Why are you here? 
His death and resurrection and ascension as the Lord over all nations. That's why I'm here. And we have to get rid of this Western individualistic notion that um, getting into the presence of God is something we do off in a corner on our own. And I will say that, yes, you can pray and enter in by faith this way. You can be at home reading your Bible and be present with the Lord. He and He is present with you. I'm not saying that it goes away. I'm just saying that's not the only thing. But Paul is adamant here. You, y'all, are God's Spirit-filled sanctuary. Y'all are. Together in worship, we enter God's holy place. Together in obedience, we approach the throne of God. And this is just as much a critique of individualism as it is developing sectarian factions. We, together, are that sanctuary, which means it must be protected from the encroachment of sin. Had Adam done his job, let's bring it back to Adam here. Had Adam done his job, he would have put the serpent to death with the switchblade he had just invented. He was to guard the garden and he was to guard his wife. He failed at both. But Jesus has come as the second Adam to not only rid the garden of untoward guests like the serpent, he has come to beautify his new sanctuary, his bride. And I'll tell you, that's really what Revelation is all about. Don't miss the forest for the trees in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all about the coming of a new sanctuary, a bride adorned for her husband. It's about Jesus getting his bride ready in history. See, as God's sanctuary people, again, that's what a saint is, we must mimic our Lord and Savior. We must guard our own hearts, knowing that He is the judge of even our intentions and not men. We must not spend our time navel-gazing. Don't even judge yourself. That's what the pietist movement is all about, by the way. It's just looking inward. It's hand-wringing, nervousness. I don't know if Christ's blood is sufficient for me and i got to do all the right things. And that's where you get the workspace righteousness stuff. Don't even judge yourself. Christ is your judge. We instead must be so anchored in Christ, the supreme judge, that all of our actions are in, in alignment with him. So guard your own garden heart so that the garden sanctuary of this church is free from malice and pride and self-deception. Together we are living stones, Peter says. Do you remember? We are living stones, and we hold everything in our possession. All things belong to you, dear church. Since we belong to Christ, everything he has is ours for stewardship purposes. So why give yourself to envy? Why give yourself to covetousness, theft? You have it all. Y'all are God's dwelling place, so glorify God with your life. And I want to end with this quote from Calvin because I think it's just really good. He says it well. And here, let us engrave the useful lesson upon our hearts that we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered amongst the worshipers of God and that we should avail ourselves of the inestimable privilege of the stated assemblies of the church, which are necessary helps to our infirmity and means of mutual excitement and encourage. Masterful. The visible church matters. Avail yourself to her often, and this will keep the politicking away. 
And don't forget that it is our job to expand the influence of the sanctuary into all areas of life. So embrace the gospel, adore the gospel, love and serve the gospel, and by all means, make it known. Make it known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask and pray that your word which has been preached would be a seed planted in our hearts that would flourish and grow into a harvest of righteousness and justice. We pray and ask that you would help us as your sanctuary to guard our hearts, to keep them unstained from sin and the temptations of the world. Help us to destroy pride in our hearts and help us to guard and be like you, Lord Jesus, our great King, who not only died for our sin, but has brought us near as a great high priest and is now our King ruling and reigning over the nations. Help this word to be something we can be reminded of this week as we do battle against the world, against sin, against the flesh. Help us to be reminded of the power that it is your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.